G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and here I am again in this election season with another senator uh, who I would like to talk to about the uh, values that ACL holds dear and that our supporters hold dear in time for the federal election on the 21st of May. And right now I am joined by my friend, uh, the senator from Queensland, Amanda Stoker, who is currently, among other things, the assistant minister to the attorney general. So, Amanda, welcome and thanks so much for doing this with us. Oh, it's a joy. Thank you for having me on. Um, what I want to do to start with, Amanda, is begin with a little bit of your background uh, and some of your context and career. Uh, I'm not trying to make you blush with the list that I'm going to go through, but I think it's important context for uh, people who are watching just to understand where you come from uh, and some of your, your background. You were born to a father who was a tradesman. Uh, your mum was a retailer. assistant. Uh, and I think, you know, you're on the record uh, saying that these were fairly humble conditions that you started life in. However, uh, something was on fire in you because you graduated uh, high school in the top 20 students in the state of New South Wales with a HSC score of 99.8 out of 100. Uh, you competed at a national level in gymnastics. You studied law and arts at the University of Sydney with a scholarship. You graduated with first class honours. You were associate to Justice Ian Callanan on the High Court of Australia. People with a legal background might not know how significant that is. That is a really special gig to get. Uh, then you were associate to Justice Philip McMurdo on the Supreme Court of Queensland. Then you were a prosecutor at the Department of Public Prosecutions for the Commonwealth. Uh, you were a barrister in private practice. I understand one of the youngest women ever to be called to the bar in Queensland. Then uh, you were also an academic, actually, at the Central Queensland University for a time in the School of Business and Law. And as of 2018, a senator for the state of Queensland. So relatively recently, but uh, currently and already, indeed, uh, the Assistant Minister for Women the Assistant Minister for Industrial Relations and the Assistant Minister to the Attorney General. And somewhere in there, uh, I think you've said to me offline that this is the most important bit. You got married, you had three children, and you became a Christian. So just for context, <laughs> we finished with the, with the highest achievement there. Um, that is the important bit. That's the bit that makes it exactly all matter. Right. <laughs> Brings the meaning into the whole picture, doesn't it? But look, um, you are just still in your 30s. Um, and uh, by any rational measure, um, I think that's a story of some success uh, and accomplishment and experience. You know, what's your reflection on that, as I, as I say it? Look, I think it says really wonderful things about the opportunity that exists for all of us in this country, that a person who can be from modest means um, can nevertheless be someone who can go to university, who can um, who can get a job in the field they've always wanted to be in, who could aspire to um, represent their neighbour and um, contribute to their country. I really do believe that no person is 100% defined by their circumstances and we've always got choices, choices to, to act better, to contribute more, to, um, to improve the circumstances of those around us. And um, I hope my story says a little bit about that. It also speaks to being raised around um, good, albeit simple values and having, you know, great parents and teachers and family around me. Hmm. You know, that's such a contrast, as you say that, to what I hear so much of these days, which is more of a victim mentality uh, to say, well, we are defined by our circumstances. We're even defined by the colour of our skin and our sexuality and our poverty and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, how toxic is that, do you think, in, in the culture at the moment? 
I think the way that identity politics encourages people to find um, a reason why they are a special kind of victim so that they might claim some different kind of privilege is really unhealthy. It might have been well-intentioned at the outset, I really couldn't say. But when you tell a person that based on something um, over which they have no control and which should have no meaning or no bearing on the content of their character, like, for instance, the colour of their skin, um, you're putting a limitation on them that doesn't need to be there. Uh, it's entirely in the mind. And um, I don't want to see people restricted in the things they feel able to do and contribute and achieve based on something as arbitrary as that. Amen. Um, now, Amanda, let's get into your job at the moment. Uh, you are the Assistant Minister to the Attorney-General. I have a suspicion that people hear that phrase, that title Attorney-General, often, and they smile and nod their head, but they actually have no idea what it means. So I want you to set the record straight and let us know what actually is the Attorney-General. And you're the Assistant Minister to the Attorney-General. Why is it important? So the Attorney-General is the first law officer of this country. It means they are responsible for making sure that the government acts and um, legislates and behaves in ways that are consistent with the limitations on government in our constitution. Um, I'm a bit of a law nerd, as you might have gathered, so um, making sure that we understand properly and abide by the constitution is something really important to me. We're also responsible for the Commonwealth's criminal law, for the operation of federal courts, so that's the... Um, Federal Circuit and Family Court and also the Federal Court. Um, there's also some tribunals that, that we look after in that bucket as well. The other thing that we do that is really important is that we're responsible for a lot of the framework around Australia's security and security agencies um, and things like the information that government uses and how that um, is limited in the ways that it can be used um, in breaches of people's privacy. So we are an important, I would say, limitation and safeguard on the things that government can do. It's really important you have people who respect freedom and who respect the rule of law in the office of the Attorney-General. Hmm. And you have a role there that is... Um, uh, it's a slightly different role to the sort of politician I think people often see on their social media and so forth. I mean, um, if I could put it this way, there's kind of like an outsider-insider dynamic, and both have their place. I'm not criticising either one. But I think a lot of, uh, say, our supporters, for example, tend to look at the uh, ones that are outsiders uh, in the sense that they're backbenchers. They don't have ministerial or assistant ministerial roles, uh, or maybe they're crossbenchers. In other words, they're in a minor party uh, or they're an independent and they sit by themselves in, in the Senate. Uh, and those people have a lot of freedom. Those people can say pretty much anything they want. Uh, and in the Liberal Party, they're allowed to defy the, the party line uh, and oppose the government in what they say or second-guess the government. They have dynamic social media profiles. They speak freely and openly. And people look at them and say, oh, that's what I want in a politician, you know. Uh, why can't all the politicians be like this person? Um, bring us into the picture a little bit because, you know, I think some people think that when a politician gets into uh, a ministerial role or an outer ministerial role, it's almost like they lose their convictions because uh, they become a little quieter on the outside of the tent. But of course, you're bringing a lot more influence inside the tent and that's no less important. Am I right? That's my view, Martin. I think it's really important. You've got three, three categories of people, as you've said. There's those that are outside of the major parties um, and they have 
in many ways, complete freedom to tell people exactly what they want to hear, but very little leverage to actually achieve any of those things. Now, sometimes in an odd circumstance, they might get the balance of power and that might give them a chance to sort of provide a veto at some point or to, um, you know, try and bargain for particular opportunities. But fundamentally, they are not in the room when policy is being formulated and any values or any beliefs they hold are largely irrelevant to the process of governing. That's a really important thing to notice. Um, there's lots of being a talking head and not a lot of the substance of policy or the substance of governing that goes on from those who are in the crossbench and minor parties. Then you've got the backbench in the major parties. Now, if you're in the backbench in the coalition, you do have the freedom that you mentioned a moment ago, Martin. You can um, you can have views that sit differently to the rest of your party. And um, as people who respect differences of opinion in, in the coalition, we, we're pretty tolerant of that sort of thing. Um, we pay a political price for it sometimes, but I think it's really important that we don't sort of enforce a, a hard and fast homogeneity on um, the people in our party room. Our difference is our strength oftentimes. If you're in the Labor Party and you're in the backbench, you get none of that freedom. If you speak out, you're out. And so I think that's a significant difference between the majors. But when you're somebody like me who's come to the parliament with you know, pretty traditional, pretty conservative views, um, and you've made those very clear from my maiden speech, or maybe even before then, um, they're well and truly on the record. Um, there is a little bit of attention when you move into um, the ministry, and I'm in the outer ministry at the moment, to uh, make sure that you are sort of sticking with the government um, program. Now, it just doesn't mean you've lost your conviction. What it means is that you direct that conviction you direct your contribution on those values questions in an inward-looking way so that instead of it being something that you do on the television or you do on social media, you're putting that policy contribution um, with your values in mind. In many ways, that's more meaningful because at the time when you're putting together decision-making, when you're putting together policies as a government team before long before it's announced before the public it means that those beliefs are in the room and so i think it's a really important thing to notice oftentimes people say oh, i want to go for the the candidate who's you know really strident and really brazen on these things um, because they always tell me what i want to hear in fact if you're serious about making let's say some of the more traditional conservative values mainstream australian values it's much higher value to have that in the, around the cabinet table. Um, it's much better to have those perspectives inside the tent rather than just sort of throwing rocks at it from the outside. Um, and importantly, it's very much the case that if you don't support people in the major parties who share these values, you can't be surprised when there's no one in the majors who are prepared to stand up for the things that you value. So it's a real tension and everyone will make their own call about how they want to go about expressing their beliefs. Um, but I would suggest that it is the highest value thing to do to surround your cabinet table with people who are prepared to be brave on the things that you're passionate about. Um, that's how you take something from being, um, you know, an idea on the margins to being, being an idea that's at the heart of the government of this country. That's really exciting. And um, I love that in my small way, I get to contribute to that. 
Mm. I think that is such an important uh, little sort of um, distinction there that you've made and such an important political insight. Uh, And I just really encourage people to understand that very real dynamic, uh, which is you have the people doing their part But don't imagine that just because um, Amanda Stoker is the assistant minister to the attorney general or some other politician is a minister or an assistant minister, that they've lost their convictions or that they've become cowards. It's a different role. And that's the way the system is set up. But it's an important role. So I think that's such a little important insight there. We're going to bottle that and and release that on its own, I reckon. Um, But look, um, let's get into some of the things that you've said on the record. And, And here's the other thing, actually, Amanda, what I appreciate about you is that even though you are in that role, you're very clear about what you believe. And you've put it out there and you've put it down on paper. And I can actually quote to you these things now as we go through some actual issues. But let me just back up a little bit. You wrote an opinion piece in 2019, and it contained the following quote, and this is about your, your, your childhood. You said, my earliest political memory is of sitting on the kitchen lino playing. Mum was on the phone to the bank negotiating more time to manage the tension of the family budget with the burden of the 18% interest rate on the family home and the obligations of dad's plumbing business. Mum negotiated because dad works seven days a week as well uh, as and, and mum squeezed in uh, retail, uh, shifts as a retail assistant at a day-night chemist. Uh, I would have been about six. Like so many Australians, my parents didn't talk politics, but even then as a child, I knew it wasn't right that responsible people who worked so hard were struggling. That instinct was confirmed during the Howard years when I saw my parents work in precisely the same way and flourish. I had to understand why. I'm going to come to the political point you make there. But first of all, I just want to tell you something that I encountered when reading that. I thought I've read this story before um, because I've done a few interviews now with uh, senators, actually, uh, from un- unbelievably similar backgrounds. You know, it's the same script. Uh, they, and it sounds cliche, and yet here it is. It's real. You've got people who have given their lives to public service, uh, usually people who have achieved a lot in a short time, uh, and also people who tend to have very strong Christian values. Um, And their background starts with this humble beginning, with financial hardship, and then they go on to be phenomenally successful against the odds. Then they get into public service. What is it, Amanda, that drives people like you people with that kind of experience, specifically into public service like this at this high level, do you think? Um, it's really interesting that you observe that pattern. I think that's that's fascinating in itself. That vivid, that memory is really vivid for mm, me still. It's very real, yeah. Um, I think when you're raised in an environment with people who do work very hard, there's a certain work ethic that you absorb almost by osmosis. And um, in some ways, if you work hard enough at anything, you, you will succeed. Um, I think that's a part of it. I think the other part of it is that when you're raised in a household that does have good values and you see something that is unfair or unjust around you, um, you do feel compelled to do something about it. Um, I feel quite heavily um, the the opportunities that I've had that my parents didn't have, um, that I have more education than anyone in my family before me um, has has ever had. And I think about the people who, um, you know, my, my dad used to work with or that he used to socialise with um, and that they would be tradesmen or labourers or um, 
you know, doing odd jobs here and there. They were invariably people who uh, lived pretty hand to mouth. They um, sometimes had vices with which they struggled. Um, most of them had problems with the law and half their problem was um, their inability to articulate uh, well what they were trying to do. Um, and so part of my drive to get into law was about being able to help people a bit like my dad to navigate the world a bit more effectively than they did. Um, and then I guess I came to learn that there were other ways to serve and, and have a bigger impact. And um, that was partly born of that upbringing, partly based on a frustration closer to the time where I nominated. But um, it's, it's all about where do your values drive you to contribute? And I think if you've got good values around you and a work ethic, um, that comes from that kind of an upbringing, it's a recipe for for doing things beyond yourself. Hmm. I want to pick out what you just said there because there's two things going on which I encounter a lot in politics. The first one is you said raised with the good values um, and, and by implication there you're talking about a family environment as well. Um, but also you made a point in that quote that I mentioned which was uh, firmly economic, which is that you know if people work hard then the economic situation should improve. I tend to kind of um, encounter two sorts of politicians that would call themselves right of centre. Uh, one sort tends to be very, very heavily in the, you know, it's the economy stupid kind of basket. Um, and they, um, they really are saying, you know, I remember being at an event where a, a politician got up to give a speech and said, you know, the only question I ask about policy is does it make the economy go faster or slower? And I thought, ooh, that's a pretty, pretty bold way to state your highest value. Um, but then I meet others, uh, and I think you're among them, uh, who would say, well, no, that's not all there is to life. Um, the economy is important, but perhaps there's something even more fundamental, which is the social fabric, which is personal virtue. Uh, and you made a comment in your maiden speech. Yeah, your maiden speech. You said, I'm a proud conservative, but we conservatives are misunderstood. Many think we're preoccupied with money and economics, while the left is all about people and kindness. And then you say conservatives take account of the whole person, seeing him or her as both an economic creature and, more importantly, a spiritual creature whose individuality, creativity and very essence matter. Um, could you just articulate what is the connection there between the social fabric and the social policy uh, and the culture wars play into that uh, and the economic thing? So the economy matters, right? It's really important for people to be able to... Um, make ends meet and provide for the people they love. But um, the economy itself is not the objective. We only need money to do things with it. And um, you don't measure the value of a life um, in dollar terms. What matters is what you have done with it. Um, and so I think the economy matters. Um, but sometimes when people only feel comfortable talking about the economy, it's because um, they aren't as um, upfront or comfortable with being clear about what their values are. Um, but it is, it is always the case that you know, our relationships with the people that we love, our opportunities to, to raise children, to um, build something that matters in our community, whether it's um, whether it's a football club, a business, a church, um, a school, the ability to um, care for people we love as they age, um, the ability to see people 
um, grow to reach their potential. These are the things that stuff is that the life is made of. Um, life is a spiritual journey that we take with others rather than just being about dollars and cents. And so when I think about um, that that quote from Barry Goldwater that was in my maiden speech, I just thought it encapsulated it so well. It's socialists who want to think of us all as economic units and demand that we all progress until we earn exactly the same amount of money every week and that's when society will be perfect. I, I couldn't disagree more. It is when we recognise that every single one of us, made in God's image, has different talents, has um, a different sort of spark of, of grace in us, a different thing to contribute, um, that we are able to, as a society, achieve our most incredible things. Uh, it's how we release the talent of the scientists and the inventors and, and the caring people and the teachers and um, the artists who bring it all together in a creative way. It's recognising the individuality in all of us, what, um, what Goldwater calls the, the spark of the divine, that is how we achieve most as a society, the most as a social fabric and the most as an economy. Um, that's how conservatives work. And um, when we only think about dollars and cents, we are missing half the story. Hmm. Amen. Um, on that note, I think that's a bit of your background uh, and your broad broad philosophical parameters. I want to talk about a few specific issues now. The first yeah. one is, and you probably feel like you've spent half your life uh, looking at the religious discrimination bill over recent years. I know you worked <laughs> extremely hard uh, getting that together. With and, you, you know, Martin we all and talked your colleagues. Um, look, hats off yeah, to exactly. and to you, you know, and the team. You, you were great to work with. And yeah. I, I loved working with you through what was a hugely difficult job. Sorry, Thanks for that. You. And look, it was a pleasure to work with you guys. And look, actually, there's a lot of goodwill here, which people may not see on the outside. There was goodwill, there was hard work. Uh, and nonetheless, oh, it came to the day and it fell apart. Um, rats. Uh, but just explain, let, just let us into uh, an insight into, you know, how disappointed were you that that failed? And how important do you think that policy area is at the moment? Look, it it was hugely disappointing because um, in that bill, we had an opportunity to recognise in law for the very first time the important notion that in religious freedom, we have a recognition of how fundamental it is to the idea of the free human being that a person be able to speak freely, be able to associate freely, be able to choose what they believe um, because faith brings all of those things together. Um, if you can't think for yourself, um, well, you can't come to God, really. If you can't speak for yourself and articulate that faith, um, then how are you supposed to hear the word from, from others? And if you can't associate with others in the way that, say, the body of a church do, um, then we are really stymied in our ability as people of faith to do our thing. Um, so it was very, very important to me that that moment be achieved. Um, we didn't get over the line, thanks to um, a frustrating handful on um, the coalition side, all of the Labor Party and all of the crossbench um, in the House of Representatives, that is, it never came to the Senate. And that was frustrating because 
they said they were prepared to pass the religious discrimination bill, but only if they took away some really important protections for schools in the Sex Discrimination Act. Now, to take all of those away would have undercut the ability of uh, religious schools to achieve their mission so much um, that it was worth going back to the drawing board on the whole thing. Now, that is hugely frustrating. Um, uh, I know how many hours you put into it, um, Martin, and your team, and I, I have absolutely lost count of how many um, I put in. But I also see it as, a, as an opportunity in many ways. And um, it was only by a handful of votes that things didn't come together last time. It remains a principle to which um, the Liberal National Party is committed. Uh, we still very much want to see this um, achieved. And now we have the chance okay. to embark on a journey really together to help educate Australians about the importance of these fundamental freedoms and why they matter, even if you aren't somebody who wants to use them right now. Um, because, of course, notions like freedom of speech and freedom of thought, well, they are as important to things like the scientific method um, that has helped create the technologies and inventions that have helped us prosper um, as they are to the ability of a person to achieve a spiritual life and spiritual growth. Um, these are important concepts. They're worth fighting for. They're still worth fighting for. Um, and in many ways, we only just fell short. So I'm optimistic um, that as part of our future agenda, we might be able to um, get the success that we, we missed out on this time. Okay, that's great to hear. I was actually going to ask you uh, what you think the prospects of something coming back in another iteration, perhaps, in a re-elected coalition government was. You've answered the question, so that's encouraging, and, and you're somebody who with, with uh, more knowledge than the average person on, on the likelihood of that. Uh, so very encouraging to hear. Just let me address one other thing from, that, um, from those comments you made. It is true, isn't it, that that line that keeps getting used that, uh, you know, Labor and the crossbench and a couple of those coalition rebels, you know, they were voting to get rid of a law that lets religious schools expel LGBT kids. That's the, that's the PR line. That's uh, the, 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 the fake news, <laughs> the false information that's out there, if you like. Um, that's not true, is it? That's not what that was about. It's definitely the PR line that was run because it sounds shocking and cruel. But the reality that we know is, first, um, faith-based schools weren't doing that. When somebody was struggling with their sexuality or their gender, for instance, um, they were overwhelmingly treated pastorally and caringly um, as part of a community that wanted to see them be their best. So that was the first aspect in which it was um, such a damaging line to run. The other aspect is these exemptions are quite important. Um, they might be a bit of a blunt instrument in the sense that they operate broadly, but what they do is important. It means that if you take away that provision, you don't, you don't only take away the ability of a school to you know, expel a gay kid as if, as if that's something they would want to do anyway. Um, you also take away their ability to engage in a disciplinary process and management of behaviour for people who have any of those types of attributes and to have a two-tier behaviour management system or a, um, you know, exemptions from the usual code of conduct for students, for people who can find you know, one of these identity politics attributes on which to hook it on, um, is problematic for school cohesion. The other aspect that's problematic about it is that 
let's say you're a school that wants to teach the Bible in, in all of its um, in all of its complexity. It would take away the ability of a school to teach those aspects of the Bible that butt up against contemporary notions of identity politics as as they are represented in aspects of discrimination law. And the idea that we would let our parliaments censor those aspects of religious teaching um, that you know are otherwise you know they're not criminal <laughs> they are um, otherwise able to be taught in this country I think it's something that should be quite disturbing um, it shouldn't be the case that we're comfortable with the idea of governments sticking their nose into whether or not the religious teachings of a school um, cut the mustard in circumstances where a school community powered by its leaders and its parents have all made decisions about what they want the kids in that school to learn and they've been prepared to back it with their time and their dollars. Um, civil society, that social fabric, depends upon us letting individuals go out into their community, form groups of like-minded people to do good things in our community. And it fundamentally undermines that when we allow faraway governments to say, you can assemble and contribute in this way, but not if you're gonna say that. Um, it just doesn't work that way. And if we wanna have a strong civil society, we need to be able to respect that the schools and the parents that know these kids best are the ones best placed to determine uh, what the teachings and policy should be. Amanda, what do you make of this? One of the things I hear all the time uh, when it comes to these issues of freedoms, like freedom to speak, freedom to associate, freedom to have Christian schools, freedom of religion, you know, one of the things they always say is, oh, no, it's harmful, you know. Uh, if you allow those freedoms, you're going to end up with people saying unpredictable things or bigoted things or nasty things, or you're going to have religions using their faith as a cover and an excuse to do all sorts of awful stuff. And so the, uh, the accusation is that actually freedom is harmful, Therefore, we need to start clamping down in the ways you just described, you know, the state controlling what can and can't be said and so forth. I mean, really, is it really the freedom that's the harm here? That seems to me to be just a false argument. Well, freedom isn't the harm. And I think there's, there's two problems that have sort of coalesced around this. Um, the first is the idea that um, anybody would want to be using um, the provisions of an act like this to do harm. And in fact, there were so many um, safeguards on it that if a person was trying to, for instance, uh, quote scripture with malice to um, cause a kind of, sort of yeah. psycho psychological injury or something, that wouldn't have been protected by the act anyway. Um, it was all about the genuine yeah. expression of a genuinely held belief, not the you know use of scripture as a weapon against others. Um, so first, the bill didn't do that. The second thing to say is that um, we need to be really careful about thinking of words as violence. Now, there's a difference between words that prompt a person to an act of violence. That, that is strictly defined, um, you know, the kind of hate speech uh, about which people quite understandably get perplexed. And um, we do not want to have a situation where people are being prompted to violence by, by the words of another. But words themselves that you don't like, words that you don't want to hear, um, you know, a hearing the words of a religion you reject, that's not actually violence. Um, and the day that we started to treat 
polite speech that we disagree with as though those words are violence, we went down a pretty horrible path that if followed to its conclusion could in fact be a real threat to freedom. Yeah, well, that's why we grew up saying sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's, that's what my mum said to me every time I got up. Yeah. Do you know, Martin, I said that to my daughter not long ago when she came home grumpy about oh, right. some, some, some social thing at school. I said, darling, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And um, she said, you made that up. And I said, no, I didn't. It's, it's a real thing. We, <laughs> we were raised to believe it. She goes, no, that's not what we're taught at school. At school, we are taught that words okay. are harmful. I'm like, well, no, yeah. honey, that's just not right. And we had to have a really quite serious discussion about it. She still didn't fully believe yeah. me, I think, by the end of it. Later on, we went for a walk and we were listening to music. And um, a song came on. Um, uh, it's called Titanium and it's by Sia and somebody else. Sorry, my music knowledge is, is not that great. But um, there was a point Sorry. in it where the, where the singer goes, sticks and stones may break my bones. And she just stopped walking and looked at me. She goes, you didn't make it up. And I went, no, I didn't make it up. Sticks <laughs> and stones are all that can break your bones. Words can't hurt you. And, and ever since she's really internalised mm. this understanding that um, – just like no one can make you feel inferior without your consent, words cannot hurt you unless you choose to internalise them, um, has been a real game changer for her. And um, I can't help but think we almost need that on, on a society-wide level. Yeah, and it's just amazing. You know, she says, you made that up. That's not true at first. <laughs> and it just shows that this actually has almost become an archaic saying. Like, it's so counter cultural and yet when we were when i was a kid which gosh wasn't that long ago um we used to say it to each other continually uh and my parents baked it into us young so that's that's great good parenting message for our times um anyways i'm going to go into a different sort of branch of the freedom tree just for a second um uh, we talked about religious freedom freedom for schools freedom of speech things like that another area of freedoms which is definitely on everyone's mind at the moment is just this whole idea of mandates passports mm. around the vaccine issue um and the, the these coercive measures in effect to uh, say to people well if you don't get vaccinated you'll lose your job or if you don't get vaccinated you can't go out to certain businesses you can't enter certain venues you know do you think that perhaps we've we freaked out and forgot our really important cardinal principles of liberty and freedom around this what's your take well i think it's fair to say that in the early days of the pandemic there was a lot of fear um, and some of that fear was um, reasonable in the circumstances in that we didn't really know what we were dealing with and people didn't know whether or not they were facing um, a, a virus that was um, intense and strong and um, unstoppable or whether it was something much milder. Um, but I think quite often about that, um, that old maxim, you know, those who would sacrifice freedom for security um, would well, really deserve neither. Um, and it's one, one of the things that I was really pleased to see as a federal government was that we made vaccines really available. We provided a lot of information about them, um, but we ensured, and this was something I spoke up very strongly to ensure was the case, 
we ensured that the decision about whether to get vaccinated was a decision for the individual because only the individual should be able to decide what medical treatments go into their body. Um, these things can't be forced. They shouldn't be forced. Um, that's it. I'm vaccinated. Um, it was the right thing for me. Um, people with different health conditions or at different stages of life, you know, maybe if you're trying to conceive or you might have a different perspective and um, I can respect that too. I've been very consistent and um, and outspoken about how wrong it is, though, that state governments have not just um, mandated it for being able to move around freely until, you know, around about now, but they've taken away so many people's ability to work, even in low-risk environments, um, unless they are prepared to undergo a mandatory vaccination. Um, now, that's so problematic because it takes away a fundamental freedom um, in a way that I can't think of having occurred, um, at least in my lifetime, but possibly for a lot longer. Um, the thing that, it was its breadth and inflexibility too, which made it particularly abhorrent. There wasn't sufficient scope for there to be exemptions for people who um, maybe had a prior heart condition that made them hesitant. Maybe they had um, other medicines or, or prior illnesses, or maybe they'd had the virus before and that changed their perspective on things. Um, an example I, I gave um, from a real story of someone who, who spoke to me in my office was a paediatrician. She's was around about my age, um, maybe a little bit younger actually, and um, she was undergoing fertility treatment to have a baby that she and her husband desperately wanted. They had been trying to conceive for a long time. Her system was obviously very delicate and her fertility doctor said, look, don't get the vaccine until after you've delivered your baby. Once you've done that, you can get vaccinated and it won't be a problem. Um, but because of the inflexibility of the mandate that was imposed by the Queensland government, um, she had to make a decision about whether or not she was going to continue with fertility treatment or whether she was going to be able to practice as a paediatrician. Um, she chose to continue with the fertility treatment, but for the you know, literally a couple of thousand patients she had, they had to join the end of an 18 month waiting list to get the services of a paediatrician. Um, that's not good for anybody. All the training that went into skilling her up for that important role, benched, um, and all because of an unwillingness to say, well, we could manage that risk using other methods. Um, you know, if you can commit to this hygiene regimen or maybe, maybe a mask or maybe um, using regular rat tests, there are other ways we could do this the complete one-eyed inflexibility of it and a preference for taking away people's freedom um, rather than being a little bit problem-solving, flexible about this, um, I think speaks to bad government. But that's that's all been inflicted by state governments. I have been relentless in my fight against it and, and really very proud that as a federal government, we never went down that path. I, I see it as one of those sort of small contributions um, that... A, a conservative person inside the tent can make. Hmm. That's right. And that's that's a really important point you make, which is that, yeah, when there are people inside the tent that are that are, you know, talking about these things and have these convictions, uh, it can it can make a difference. But, yeah, I think people are so weighed down. I mean, so weighed down by some of the uh, ways that's particularly Western Australia at the moment. I mean, I don't know what's going on over there, but the, the way some of the state governments uh, in particular uh, have have pressed this issue, but no. Oh, look, I'm really glad to have you on the record on that. That's great. I want to just jump over to a, a different area now, um, and sure. that is um, 
the issue of family. Uh, you said in your maiden speech to the Senate, I've got a quote here, and I've got to quote this because there's a you, you reference a really cool policy, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. You said every family will manage the strains of raising and educating children while working to provide an income differently. That is as it should be. So while childcare should be available and affordable to those who need it, so too should we value those families who choose to make the sacrifices needed for a parent to stay at home. One way of valuing that sacrifice would be to tax families as a unit rather than as individuals. Now, I know that um, I think Senator Matthew Canavan, who's also a Queensland senator, has, has mentioned this very thing as well. Can you just yeah, explain what that is? Because I, I think that our supporters would go crazy for something like this. Just explain it firstly, but also is it something do you think that a coalition government would ever pursue uh, as a policy? Sure. Well, the idea is that if you're an individual um, and you go to work, you get a tax-free threshold before you start um, paying tax. Um, but if you if you marry or you're in a relationship and um, there's two people working, you you get the benefit of two tax three tax free thresholds. Um, each of you, you know, I guess running your own race as it comes as it comes to work. Um, but you can't combine those together and say, in a household where we've made a decision that one person's going to go and earn, you know, to the maximum of their earning capacity, and the other person's going to stay at home and look after our children because that's something we want to do or it's something that fits with our values, um, you can't sort of claim that a bigger tax-free threshold that reflects the combined efforts of a whole family, the two tax-free thresholds together, for instance, um, in a situation where that occurs. Now. My way of looking at it is this. If we're serious about empowering women, um, and I know this might be a, um, a little bit of a non-traditional issue for um, some of the people who might listen in on this. If we're serious about empowering women, isn't that about giving them the full range of choices about what they do with their life? Some women will say, I really want to have a career. I'll fit kids in at some time. I'm happy to use childcare that works for our household, that's fine. There'll be others who say, I really feel like it's my calling. My calling in this life is to raise children and to raise them um, in the kind of environment only I can provide. Um, and if they're in a relationship where that's something that's achievable and they're prepared to make the sacrifices necessary to do it, well, truly respecting and empowering women to make the full range of choices has to include respecting the choices of someone to stay at home. Um, you can't assume that everybody who's at home caring for children is, you know, locked up in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant in a, in a derogatory way. <laughs> um, it's often something that a, a woman and a man deeply want. Um, and if that's the case, we should respect that. And we should respect it in our tax system and we should respect it um, in, in the way that we talk about people who make those choices. Now, at the moment, that doesn't reflect the, the policy of this country. Um, although we have made a lot of um, recent steps, I think that reflect greater choice for families, like for instance, making um, parental leave something that can be um, sort of bundled up together. So that there is, don't, don't just have two weeks worth of dad and partner pay and um, you know 13 weeks of um, leave for a, for a mother. 
Um, instead, it's all bundled together and the family can divvy it up as they see fit, do it in chunks if needed. Um, it can be tailored to suit the, the choices of that household. Well, I think we should do that for tax as well. Um, now, not coalition policy now, um, but I think as we develop as a nation into having a more, more nuanced conversations about what does um, equal but different mean when we talk about uh, women's role in this country, that this should be a part of it. Yeah, um, I, I, I love the fact that um, uh, what you've got there is an opportunity effectively for a family unit uh, to make enormous tax savings, and as you say, however they break things up, but make enormous tax savings and therefore support the choices of the family to raise the kids. I wonder whether this is um, one of those areas where it's kind of useful to get uh, people who are liberally minded in economics but also have uh, strong, let's say, conservative social values who believe in the value of the family unit, who believe in the value of some of that social fabric stuff into the parliament, into the cabinet table, into that inside the tent position where they can say, guys, it's not just about getting every single person uh, into the workforce. There's another value here, which is that you've got families and families need to be looked after. I think there's value too in trying to um, measure the benefits that come from people having a period of time at home with parents um, so that as we make data-driven decisions, um, we can then point to data that mm. says this is actually a really good thing in the lives of people who choose to do it. Um, and I think it doesn't have to be an either-or situation. Having a parent who stays at home for a bit to do some mothering or some fathering um, and to help their child grow up with, um, say, strong male and female uh, role models in their lives, um, that can pay dividends that extend through the life course and don't actually prevent either parent from having great careers at some point in the life journey. Um, but not everybody has to be doing all things at once. And I see it as a far better thing to structure this kind of support through the tax system because it is connected to someone still making a working contribution in the household rather than necessarily always doing it through the welfare system, which doesn't always have that connection. Yeah, so it's a much bigger picture view. Um, yeah. That's great. Uh, look, uh, another thing on family is just in education. You've made a, a comment about that. You said the content of education now covers matters that were once, and I think this should continue to be, uh, and I think should continue to be matters for parents moral and social matters that connect to people's religious and political views are matters for family alone. I think it's well articulated. Moral and social matters that connect to people's religious and political views kind of captures all of the ideological stuff in classrooms and yeah, in all of its different permutations of late. Look, you say, look, that's a matter for the family alone. It just seems to me we've drifted so far away from there. The education system is more and more riddled with political and sexual ideologies. Um, there was a review of the curriculum under this government uh, which put forward a whole lot of dodgy stuff. It wasn't the government that did it. It was the Curriculum Review Authority. Thankfully, the government said no. Um, but it just seems like the system's riddled. Like, is there a way back from here on that stuff? Look, I think there is. There's been some good work done by... Ministers Tudge and Robert to push back on a lot of the nonsense that's come out of 
um, academia and the public servants about pushing too far down this path. That stops more harm. I'm not sure it necessarily scales back damage that's already been done. But um, there is, I think, merit in proposals to increase the rights of parents to know what their children are being taught in this area, when it's being taught, and to give parents rights to opt in or opt out um, based on whether or not they want that to be something taught in a school or taught in home. Um, it's a real furphy that this kind of um, sort of woke teaching in schools needs to happen behind um, some sort of a screen from parents in order to achieve tolerance for people who are different. That cannot be right. It's not necessary to tell people of traditional values that they um, are bad or wrong in order to make people um, who might have differences in, for instance, their sexuality or their gender to feel as though um, they are included. It is possible to just teach everybody at school that you treat each other with respect, you be decent people, you value what's on the inside, and otherwise um, leave the rest for, for parents and for home. So I think it's really important we sort of push back on the idea that this kind of indoctrination and um, this kind of uh, pushing of things that are really quite personal onto children who are often far too young to hear it is a necessary thing in order to have a tolerant society. That's just plain wrong. The most important thing I think we can do to push back um, is first be, be firm on the idea of small government, because small government has as its flip side a stronger civil society, a stronger role for family, a greater influence for those groups in our community um, that, that best know how to navigate these things far better than any government ever could. And for good people of um, values that stand in stark distinction to um, that which is often pushed in our schools, offer in their life as service becoming a teacher or teaching teachers as academics um, and becoming a part of the on-the-ground change that's necessary to make sure um, that there are much more um, you know, balanced and healthy voices available to take kids through these formative years. Hmm. Yeah, and another thing is to join PNCs and all that and get involved in the school community as much as possible as a, a recommendation. A very good point, yeah. Yeah, always be vigilant. It's, it's, easy when, um, it's easy when you're in a busy life to think, oh, you know, the school will take care of that. But if you're not present and you're not involved, um, then it's very hard for you to have a say mm. and to make sure that this stuff um, accords with your values. And, of course, um, anything that parents do to support those in the, uh, in the private school sector because, you know, when you back it with your dollar, you, you say something about whether or not you're happy with the content of what's being taught. If you're not happy with what your child's being taught, if you're in the private school sector, you have the chance to vote with your dollar. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I think that parents are particularly concerned about uh, is uh, the teaching of gender concepts. Um, uh, there, is a, there is a concern there that schools are getting a little bit involved in not only teaching gender concepts, but in some states and in some instances, there have been times when the school has even been involved in maybe the social transition of a child uh, or the recommendation of a child for you know, affirmative treatments that sort of take them down a transgender identity pathway. Um, that's something a lot of parents really, really are worried about, and they don't like that. They, they think that's squarely in their purview. <laughs> 
<laughs> to, 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 de- to deal with that, the medical needs of a child in that area. Um, are you concerned about the way, you know, some of that ideology and indeed the affirmative, uh, I was going to say treatment, but not even that, just the affirmative action, like socially transitioning a child, calling the machine instead of he, some of those things, do you think maybe we could be going too far on that and doing more harm than good? I am really troubled by it. It doesn't seem to me that it is necessary in order to ensure that people who do genuinely struggle with their gender um, to feel like they are being treated fairly and compassionately and with respect for these kinds of really quite adult concepts around gender and sexuality to be introduced so young, to be seeded in the minds of young people who really quite frankly should be thinking about um, much lighter, much simpler and much more innocent things. Um, in many ways, it's a um, an introduction of concepts far too young that I think there needs to be a lot more research done about whether or not that's in fact seeding the explosion in cases of people who now have gender dysphoria type complaints. Mm. Um, when you combine the fact that people are being taught this often really young, um, and then when you think about the fact that schools are prepared to um, facilitate what is essentially um, you know, social and medical changes that are really very significant, well beyond, um, or should I say well below the age that any of them could consent to um, properly as an adult, uh, we've got a real recipe for disaster here. And I think history will look upon us harshly for um, those times when people have either failed to protect the right of a child to um, have their body intact as they go into adulthood where they can make decisions about it um, and to do that behind the backs of parents who, um, let's face it, know best what is in the interests of the child they love so much. Yeah. Um one of the other areas, I mean, that's that's concern for the rights of children and the welfare of children and getting that right. Um, but it seems to me there might even be an area where this plays over into affecting the rights and the well-being of adult women, uh, because uh, with the whole Leah Thomas mm. thing in the US, we've suddenly seen this phenomenon of trans women being admitted to women's sports. Uh, so someone who was biologically born male, uh, and who has gone through a transgender process and identifies as a female, are now able to compete in the swimming events, now able to compete in various sports events in different countries, and in some cases, winning those events by virtue of the significant biological advantages that they bring to the sport. Uh, your Senate colleague, uh, Senator Claire Chandler from Tasmania, has introduced a bill to protect women's sports to say, well, you know, actually, it's not fair that trans women should be competing on the same playing field as biological women. In fact, you know, it's risky, right? Uh, but uh, what's your view on, on her bill and the rights of women in that respect? Look, I'm, I'm really supportive of the great work that Senator Chandler has been doing on this front. Um, and it just beggars belief that after all of these years we've spent um, encouraging women into, um, into playing more sport for fun and 
fighting for the recognition of women as elite athletes deserving of the same kind of um, interest and respect and even pay as as their male counterparts, that we can then, in the blink of an eye, <laughs> admit biological men to that sport who, with their biologically higher um, muscle density, their, their higher bone density, are just not physically even in the same league as the ladies against who they will compete. Um, it really is such a kind of postmodern madness um, that I just think the bill speaks to so much common sense here and um, it, that it deserves support from across the parliament. Mm. Um, it's, it's really important not just for motivating um, women to be involved in sport and the health benefits that come from women who play sport. It's also important for women's recognition of their excellence and it's important for their safety. When a um, biological male who identifies as a woman gets on the field for a game of AFL or a game of rugby, um, the injury rate goes through the roof. Um, and we owe it to the safety of the women who are playing. Um, and aside from anything you want to say about bathrooms, we owe it to the safety of people on the field to say, yeah. come on, guys, if, you, if you're voluntarily joining a mixed comp, different story. If you're in women's sport, it's got to be for biological women. Um, otherwise, the, the dangers of, of harm uh, are just too high. We, we owe the women in our community better. Yeah. Uh, and if anybody's in doubt, I don't know if you saw this, Amanda, but uh, at the Tokyo Olympics, they had a very interesting event called the Mixed Relay, uh, where they actually put men and women in, in running and swimming events as relay teams. Uh, and each team could send the, the guys and the girls in whatever order they chose. And so sometimes you get a team do two guys, two girls. Sometimes it'd be a guy, girl, guy, girl. Uh, and just to see the difference in performance, <laughs> Wow, you know, it was just such an eye opener. I thought it'd be interesting to see whether they do this in Tokyo. <laughs> you know, I mean, sorry, in in Los Angeles uh, when the next when the next Olympics is on, or whether they'll realise maybe it's not a great advert for you know the mixing of of of, of biological sexes in sport. It was just incredible. So anyone who's in doubt, watch it, and you'll be no longer in doubt as to everything uh, that was just said. Um, on the life issue, I want to. This is probably the last thing I want to uh, uh, talk to you about, and the reason it's important is um, you've done quite a bold thing, I think, for a politic politician in the government um, today, and that is that you've actually identified yourself as pro-life on your website. Um, and I looked at your record, and well, you are pro-life. Um, you've voted uh, consistently in a pro-life way in, in Senate motions. So you voted against congratulating New South Wales on passing abortion to birth laws. Uh, you voted to acknowledge the day of the unborn child. You opposed exclusion zones outside abortion clinics. Uh, you've spoken at pro-life rallies, and I've been at some of those and seen you do that. Um, here's a quote from you. You said, children and babies may not be able to vote, but we must ensure that they are heard and protected by all those who govern. I want to ask you, uh, what is wrong with what is sometimes seen as a moderate position, which is safe, legal and rare when it comes to abortion? Why are you strongly pro-life? The reason I'm pro-life is that the measure of a society is how it treats those people who can't speak for themselves. And if we're not prepared to speak up for, say, the safety of our older people or for um, you know, good health care for our people with disabilities. We're not prepared to speak up for our babies 
um, then what kind of a society have we become? Um, to me, it is just the basic marker of our humanity that we would um, show care for those groups in our society that, that can't do it for themselves. Um, and knowing, at, as I do, that there are so many families um, who would open their arms and welcome um, a child into it through adoption if it were made easier for it to be uh, facilitated just means that the you know the thousands and thousands of babies that you know were, were healthy viable children um, who who don't get to experience life for reasons that okay sometimes they're medical and I can understand that to a point but oftentimes it's about matters of convenience or timing um, there's one thing I've learned in life that it's often God's plan is better than ours and yeah. Um, what can seem like an inconvenience or what can seem like it's not the plan is often the very best plan that could ever happen for, mm. um, for the time that we have ahead. And so I'd like to see us as a society do a better job of wrapping our arms around people who face unplanned pregnancy. And I'd like to see us do better in terms of facilitating support and adoption for people who um, might take that path if it were made available to them. But if it just starts with recognizing that um, this is this is how we measure our goodness as a society. It's how we treat people who cannot speak for themselves. Yeah, and I wasn't going to go here, um, Amanda, but uh, you mentioned adoption. I mean, is there things the government could do in that policy area to sort of champion adoption? Or uh, I mean, I think adoptions are down to like one or two a year in some states, uh, whereas you know no, it wasn't that many decades ago where there was a large number. Um, is that something where we're failing at the moment? I think it falls squarely in the purview of state governments, of course, as does abortion. But um, I really do think it would be so much better if when somebody called a hotline for unplanned pregnancy, they were given a range of choices, one of which was, yeah. have you thought about this chance to go, um, if you need it, to a supported place um, in, a, um, in, a, in a loving, caring environment where you can be supported to healthily nurture that child through your pregnancy um, and then deliver it to a family who you know will raise it well. Um, and so much about Queensland's child safety system um, is so broken and so difficult for um, people who might otherwise desire to make a contribution of this kind to navigate, um, that they instead opt out of doing so. And I think that's a terrible shame. So with better processes, um, better recognition of the rights of children rather than um, you know parents who might have either given a child up for adoption or fostered them out, um, and a better appreciation of um, the kind of support that might be needed at that early and vulnerable stage to make good decisions, I think we could we could have a situation where many, many more of those children are able to lead healthy, happy, full lives. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, and there's such simple measures, you know, just making offers, options, things like that that could save lives and could help women in such profound ways. So it seems so simple. Um, let me... Um, let me sort of bring this to a, a conclusion. Let's. Uh, I want to throw something over to you and sort of say, um, outside maybe uh, maybe as part of some of the things we've just said, or maybe something completely different. 
if you could get one area of reform or one policy on the agenda right now that's not necessarily on the agenda or not sufficiently on the agenda, uh, and you just had total freedom to name it and get it done, what might it be? I'd take our curriculum back to the very, very basics. Oh, yes. And um, I would learn the lessons that come from um, other jurisdictions where um, it really is just about getting the basics done well. Um, I'd leave so much more to families mm. and um, I'd allow much more sort of competition and flexibility between different schools and different school systems um, to to innovate and change the way they go about um, teaching so that there is a real market of choice for parents. Um, I don't mind if there are rainbow schools for those families that want to have that kind of education, but also leave a space for those who want something very, very different in the market. Um, I think that would really add value. It would um, be something that transformed our international performance in the education space for the better. And I also think it would better empower parents to step up and do their job well, um, as well yes. as encouraging the growth of civil society to, to wrap around and support those parents as they grow into the job of, of raising great human mm. beings. I reckon that would change culture, not just in what's being taught to the young people, but also, like you said, it would change the culture of family. All of a sudden, families have the onus to teach a lot of this stuff. I think it'd just be good all around. That's great answer. Um, great answer. Now, final question. Um, when it comes to voting in Queensland, because you're a, a senator for Queensland, um, you know, you're on the ballot, the LNP, your party's on the ballot, there's some minor parties on the ballot, there's what has become known as freedom-friendly minor parties on the ballot. Uh, here's your pitch. Why should people walk into that ballot box and choose you over one of these other independents or, or, or minor parties? There's three reasons, Martin. The first one is that while minor parties can tell you everything you want to hear, they don't actually get to do any of those things. And so you don't get more than a talking head. Second reason is if you go for a person who shares your values, who is in the tent of one of the major parties, and even better, inside um, the ministry of one of those parties, you are getting an amplified voice for your values that takes your beliefs from being something on the fringe to being something at the heart of government. And the more people you've got doing that, the more people you support who share your values into places like around the cabinet table, um, the bigger impact your values are gonna have. And the third reason, and this is an important one for people who are tempted by minor parties, is that when you think about the race in Queensland, you will get two LNP people, you'll get two Labor people. I'm, I'm dead certain that Pauline Hanson will be elected and so there's a fight on between all of these minor parties and the Greens and me for that final position. Now, again, you could have someone who will um, talk as much as you want about the things you wanna hear. You can have me and I've already given the pitch for the value I can add, or you can have a Green. And when the vote on the right splits among these freedom friendly minor parties um, and the Liberal National Party, when the, road on, the vote on the right fragments, you know what you get? you get a green. And that is the worst of all possible worlds. It's the worst for what your children get taught in school. Mm. It's the worst for their job prospects, particularly in a mining state like Queensland. 
Um, it's the worst for things like drug liberalisation. Um, it's the worst for um, everything from ensuring we have a properly funded police force to our position in the world. It's d disastrous for how much tax you're paying. It's disastrous for the economy. There is nothing good about having more Greens in the Senate, but it's very, very, very likely that that's what you get if you have a flutter with one of the minor parties on the Senate ballot form in Queensland this time around. It's particular to these circumstances, but it's a mathematical question that is borne out by history. And so even if people do have the occasional grumble with government, and I first to admit we're not perfect, um, then despite that grumble, think really carefully about whether you're prepared to risk a green in order to have your moment of defiance. I would suggest it's not worth it at this election. Um, but of course, um, I respect the, the intelligence and the decisions of the people of Queensland, and I know they'll land where they should. Uh, here's another point worth noting too, as you were speaking, about the Greens. I was just thinking, when you do get another Green in the Senate, then you get more taxpayer money, plenty of it, going to the funding of an entire office of resources that are committed to the Greens and their causes. Uh, that's actually how it works, and I think that's the key to a lot of their success, is they've got a lot of taxpayer money funding a lot of staff, uh, and they're able to grow and grow and grow what they're doing. So that's a that's another point to be made uh, about putting another Green in the Senate. But um, look, uh, as I bring this to a yeah. close, I think it's worth uh, just letting people know how to vote, because it seems to be, for some people, as complex as rocket science, and I appreciate why that is on the big Senate ballot paper, uh, but I have no idea. It can be a big ballot well, paper sometimes. So I'm in the ACT, so ours is this little white, you know, A4 page. <laughs> but in other states, I'm aware that it's kind of like as long as a double-decker bus. Um, and so people look at it and go, oh, this is too hard. Uh, so I want to explain really clearly uh, just how they might approach that, just in 60 seconds. But um, I don't know how people will respond to this interview. They've heard everything that you've said. They've heard the questions I've asked of you. I've deliberately covered the things that I believe are of concern to our supporters, things that ACL's been really active on in recent years. Uh, and if people watch that and they decide, yeah, you know what, I would like to uh, vote for Amanda Stoker, uh, I would like to preference her one or high up in my preferences and see her get that, that final spot on the ticket in the Senate uh, ballot for Queensland when the election comes around. Um, they can do one of two things. On the Senate ballot, there's a big black line that runs the full horizontal length. And above that line is the names of all the political parties. Uh, and they can put numbers in the boxes next to the political parties. They have to put one to six. Uh, now, Amanda, you're in the LNP. That's the party. However, at ACL, I, I, I am prepared to say this, and we're allowed to say this, I really do encourage people to vote people, not parties. Uh, you need to do the hard work of sorting the wheat from the tares. Uh, you need to make sure that the people you're sending into the government and sending onto the crossbench and sending into the opposition are the best possible people. So I say to people, this is just my shtick, uh, you know, don't, don't leave it to the parties. Choose for yourself. Uh, and so to do that, which I think is the responsible thing to do, you vote below that line. And that's where you see all the names of the individual persons, the people, uh, in next to the boxes rather than the political parties. Uh, and you will see Amanda Stoker, uh, the third one down the list in the LNP column, those of you in Queensland. That's where you can find her name. And I would encourage when you vote, whoever you vote for, vote below that line. Take control um, and do your research. So. Um, 
Amanda, or I should say Senator Stoker, uh, thank you so much for... Amanda <laughs> <laughs> Well, for the sake of, you know, for the sake of... We've been uh, friends a long time, Mark. We've been friends a long time. <laughs> I just realised I've been saying Amanda the whole way through the interview anyway, so it's too late now. I hope it's all good. But anyway, uh, Senator Stoker, thank you so much uh, for joining us, for doing this. Uh, it really is a pleasure. Uh, we actually, people didn't see this, but we had some technical issues along the way, uh, but we got it done. So thanks so much and, and all the best of luck at the election. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of the ACL supporters um, who would be prepared, one, to, to consider um, to supporting me in, in this election, um, but also just for the good work that you do in our community to make sure um, important values aren't forgotten. I, I appreciate it. And I really hope I'll get to work with you, Martin, and the team in um, a re-elected government. That would be a real honour and privilege. Look forward to it. Thanks, Amanda.